first Bible reading today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, which you'll find on page 1505, I think. Uh, no, 1506. No, 1505. <laughs> chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then the second Bible reading is Psalm 24. This one absolutely is on page 860. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob, Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Thank you, Robin. Robin said before that if you had any questions today, you can text them in to me. Now, the number's not, my number's not on the leaflet, but it is on the screen up here right now. So if you think you might want to ask a question this morning, I suggest you just jot that number down right now so that you can send me a text with a question a little later on. Well, over the, this year, we've been spending some time in Matthew's Gospel. We've uh, looked at other books as a church, but we keep coming back to Matthew's Gospel. If you've joined us for the first time today, you picked a good week to be with us because we're looking at the Beatitudes and they are some of the most famous verses, not just in Matthew's Gospel, but the Bible as a whole. Marv, you might remember this morning, was struggling to work out why they're called the Beatitudes. Last week I told you that that was because of the Latin word for blessed, which is Beatus, and from that we get the Beatitudes. They might be famous, but they're also a little confusing, aren't they? I wonder if you've um, taken the time over the past week to read through the Beatitudes. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that. In fact, I'd encourage you to read all of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through to 7. They seem a bit confusing, I think, at first, because in a way, it looks like Jesus is just taking the wisdom of the world and tipping it upside down on its head. So he says, essentially, the most fortunate are those who are poor. The most fortunate are those who mourn. The most fortunate are those who are persecuted. It's not surprising then, is it, that later on in the chapter, Jesus will go on to say, don't be like the rest of the world, as he speaks to his disciples. But there are, of course, more to these verses than simply just tipping the wisdom of the world upside down. 
And you see that Jesus is asking and talking and teaching his disciples, telling them to adjust their perspective to see clearly that his kingdom is coming and to see the world from that basis. I can remember thinking of these verses a little while ago as kind of like going to the gym or doing exercise, kind of like they'd be like short-term pain, but they'd have long-term gain. Like we exercise now, it hurts, but we'll be healthier in the long run. Is that how you see these verses? I think they kind of work that way, but I think that's only partly right. I think what Jesus is also saying is that those who are already disciples of Jesus, our best way to live in the here and now in this world is to live as kingdom dwellers. We're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus now. Not just because of where we're going, but that this is the best way to live. Jesus wants us to be kingdom dwellers right here, right now, in this world, in this age. And that, I think, means that we should look different to the world around us. I only begin this morning by sharing a story that I've taken from the internet. It comes from a, a book called the Ragamuffin Gospel. Um, as I research this, it looks like this is perhaps more of an urban myth than a real story, but um, it illustrates the point well. Let me read this story to you. It says, in the middle of the Great Depression, New York City Mayor Ferelli LaGuardia strived to live with the people. It was not unusual for him to ride with firefighters, raid with the police, or take field trips with orphans. On a cold night in January 1935, the mayor turned up at the night court that served the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told the mayor that her daughter's husband had left her, that her daughter was sick and that her two grandchildren were starving. However, the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighbourhood, Your Honour, he told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach the people here a lesson. And the mayor LaGuardia, he sighed, he turned to the woman, he said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. And we were back in 1935. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous hat, saying, here is the $10 fine which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to the bewildered woman who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount was contributed by the grocery store owner himself, while some of the 70 petty criminals, police with traffic people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
It's one of the three Beatitudes that were read to us earlier. I wonder if, if one of those jumps out at you, because for me it's this one. Mercy is a value and a characteristic of those who are part of the kingdom of God. I think it's a value that most of us would admire. And if you've ever been shown mercy, I think it's something that you probably would have appreciated. As I read the story of the Mayor LaGuardia in New York City, I couldn't help but wonder if he came from a background of poverty himself. Did he know what it was to have mercy shown to him? Because the story certainly seems to capture what it means to be merciful, isn't it? And certainly we would expect that those who have been shown great mercy in their life, that they would be more willing to show mercy to others. But I wonder if that really is the case. Those who have been shown mercy, are they more willing to show mercy to others? But I think what really grabs me about this particular beatitude more than the others is that it seems to beg the question, doesn't it? What happens to those who don't show mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The verse doesn't go on to clarify what happens to those who do not show mercy, but my mind kind of wanders there straight away. See, if I'm poor in spirit, if I recognize that on my own I am, as remember William Carey, who I talked about last week, as William Carey says, a wretched, poor and helpless worm, then I'm depending on the mercy of God, aren't I? Into whose kind arms I fall. I'm depending on the mercy of God. Is that mercy dependent on my actions? Well, Jesus doesn't exactly say here, does he? But he does go on to speak about forgiveness. In showing mercy and forgiveness, they seem to kind of be similar attitudes, don't they? Jesus does go on to clarify in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiveness. In chapter 6, which we looked at with Paul Harrington a, a, few, a month or so ago, in that section on hypocrisy, we, Jesus, we see Jesus saying that you should forgive. I want to go to chapter 6, though. I want you to come with me to Matthew chapter 18. It's on page 1531, and we're going to look at verse 23, and we're just going to read this parable together. It's a parable about forgiveness, and I think the same sort of thing happens with mercy. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And this servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. He might like to read on in that parable. It doesn't end well for that first servant. 
And I think this is one of the more clear parables about what exactly is going on. There's little doubt in this parable, is there, that the king is God himself. And the man who owed the 10,000 bags of gold, well, I think we're supposed to read ourselves into that situation. See, for those of us who are in the kingdom, for those of us who know the incomparable blessing of being shown mercy, of being forgiven by God, Jesus is saying to us, show mercy likewise. Be merciful. Show forgiveness. I wonder today if you find that easy to do. Do you find exercising mercy or forgiveness a costly exercise? Well, the Beatitude has for us as well the carrot, not just the stick here, doesn't it? Beatitude says it's worth it. It's worth it, even if it's hard to do, even if it's costly. It's worth it because you get the kingdom. You're showing mercy yourself. Show mercy, Jesus says, because that's what kingdom livers do. Today, in the here and now, not just in the world to come. Is showing mercy a requirement entering into the kingdom of God? Well, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, very clearly he gives us instructions about what, whether you're in or not. He says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul tells us that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the test for entry into the kingdom. But here's another test, isn't there? If you know and you've been shown mercy, really shown it, wouldn't you also want to show mercy to others? Because if you don't, isn't that just being hypocritical? I want us to pause here just for a moment and remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus was beginning his teaching and preaching ministry at this time and his primary command was about repentance. Perhaps as we look at this really high bar that Jesus is setting in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to respond with genuine repentance. Well, let's move on. I wonder what you're today hungering and thirsting for. I wonder what you're striving for. I wonder what you're living for. I wonder what drives you, what motivates you. Is it building a a multi-million dollar housing portfolio? Jesus says for those who are seeking the kingdom, those who are his disciples, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a bit of a tricky beatitude for us to get our heads around, isn't it? Firstly, uh, we're pretty comfortable here in Adelaide. Few of us are accustomed to either being hungry or thirsty. You can see that's the case for me at the moment. What does it mean then to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I mean, I think we all get the idea of what it means to be hungry or thirsty. We've all missed a meal at different times. See, when we're hungry though... Our bodies are kind of beginning to tell us that we need to go and eat. Our energy levels drop. 
so that we don't run out of energy or get faint or even worse, die, our sense of hunger and thirst kicks in. A hunger and thirst is there really to save us, isn't it? To make us eat. Can righteousness save us? I think the answer to that is, of course, yes, it can. It is our righteousness, or better still, it is the righteousness of Jesus that means one day we will stand before God and be considered blessed. Well done, good and faithful servant, God will say. Righteousness does that. It's not easy to wrap our head around this word righteousness, is it? It's a tricky word. In Paul's letters, it's often used in a legal sense. At times, the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Jesus is reckoned or credited to the believer's account. Believers are then judged as righteous because of the work of Jesus on the cross. In that sense, righteousness is the thing that saves us. It's Jesus' work on the cross. In Matthew's Gospel, though, I think the word has a slightly different flavour to it. Don Carson, uh, who I quoted a few times last week, says this. He says, in Matthew's Gospel, righteousness can also mean a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. I think it's worth just remembering that as we read Matthew's Gospel, it probably doesn't just mean that. I think it can also have the connotations that Paul has in his letter as well. Probably a bit of both. But I like Carson's definition because it's so practical, so applied. Are we today hungering and thirsting for a pattern of life in conformity to God's will? It's a good question. It's a good mirror for us, isn't it? Are you hungry for righteousness? Or instead, are you pursuing other things, possibly at the cost of not following in Jesus' footsteps? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, the final beatitude I want to look at with you today concerns the heart. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In the in our world today, in our run-of-the-mill conversations, if someone asks you about the state of the, your heart, I think they'd be probably mostly interested in your blood pressure, how much fatty food you've been eating, when was the last time you smoked a cigarette, those sorts of things. Perhaps they'd be asking about your exercise. But here in this beatitude, Jesus not so much concerned with our cardiovascular health, rather he's concerned with the core or the centre of our personality our inner being. He's saying, take away the mask that you put on. Take away the filters and look deep into your sense of self. Is it pure? You'll see, uh, if you were to read on in Matthew's Gospel, you'd see in chapter 15, Jesus will say, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. How's your heart today, I wonder? As the expression goes, for some of us, we wear our hearts on our sleeves. But for others, we might look great from the outside. But it's just a facade that covers up a corrupt inside. Matthew 15, Jesus also says, quoting from Isaiah, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
See, to have a pure heart means that you're morally upright, not just ritualistically clean. You're not just acting the part. You're genuine and authentic, the real deal. I reckon the word genuine uh, is a kind of good word for us to pin to the Beatitudes. Seems to be a key criteria associated with each of them. Perhaps we could use that word authentic. Authenticity is important, isn't it? A bit of a confession to make with you this morning. I sometimes enjoy watching the BBC show Antique Roadshows. I don't know if any of you like watching that show. If you're not sure kind of what Antique Roadshows is about, it's a kind of UK show, I think. Um, people bring their treasured possessions and their knickknacks into a church or a hall somewhere. And these old uh, fuddy-duddies who are experts in the particular thing come around and they try and explain to you what the particular item was used for hundreds of years ago, whatever it is. And then most importantly, right at the end of the segment, they tell you how much it's worth. Pretty simple formula, really. Well, in one episode, uh, this man, who happens to be Father Jamie McLeod, brings in a painting that he bought from a local antique shop. I've got it on the screen behind me. He buys it for about 400 pounds. And on the show, uh, much excitement is generated because after close tests and analysis, the painting was determined to be an authentic original from the 17th century painter Anthony van Dyck. Now, the authenticity of this painting meant that it's worth more than 100 times what Father MacLeod first paid for it. More than 400,000 pounds. What makes it so expensive? Well, it's an authentic work of art from Anthony van Dyck. Authenticity is important, isn't it? Not only in the world of fine art, but also when it comes to our hearts. Our Beatitude tells us that it is those with pure hearts, authentically pure hearts, that will see God. There is an obvious allusion to Psalm 24 in this passage. Uh, Robin read it to us earlier, but I'd like you just to have a look at that with me now. It's on page 860 of our Black Bibles. I'm just going to read the first six verses of Psalm 24 for you, and you'll see the allusion to um, purity of heart within this psalm. Page 860, Psalm 24. It's a psalm of David, and it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. According to the psalm, who's able to stand in the presence of the Lord? In other words, who's able to see God? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart the one who doesn't trust in an idol. They're the ones who receive this blessing from the Lord. To see God, we need pure hearts, clean hands. 
That's the message of both Psalm 24 and Matthew chapter 5. And so the question is, how is your heart today? See, once again, Jesus is setting the bar pretty high here, isn't he? Just in case you thought there was some wriggle room in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how uh, chapter 5 finishes. Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here's the problem for me, at least. I know I'm not always perfect. I know that when I look at the state of my heart, it's not always pure. Perhaps I might say the right things, but sometimes that's just a cover. And yet I want to see God. I want to live for him. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how do we approach this holy God? Well, the book of Hebrews also knows this tension. In chapter 12, verse 14, we read this instruction. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See the link? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But Hebrews also tells us this, and I've got the words on the screen behind me because I think they're really important for us today. Here, speaking of Jesus, it says in chapter 10, verse 14, For by one sacrifice, that's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, here's the thing. By the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been made perfect, included into the kingdom of God, welcomed in. It is Jesus, he is the one who is making us holy. None of us, I think, can claim a pure heart all the time. None of us hunger and thirst for righteousness all the time. None of us are probably as merciful as we should be, but we have this great assurance. By the sacrifice of Jesus, who was himself perfect, we too are perfected and are being made holy. Now, we may still today need to remember that repentance is necessary and important at this point. Remember, Jesus began his teaching ministry with that command, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As a community, we're going to have an opportunity to do just that, to repent together in a few moments as we say the prayer of general confession together. These words are no doubt becoming familiar to you because we say them nearly every week. Today, as we say them, I don't want you to say them ritualistically. I'd love you to say them with authenticity and with deep conviction as we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your work on the cross through your son, Jesus. Thank you that in his work, we have been perfected and that you are making us holy. Father, we pray that as a church, we would be known to have the attitudes that are described in the Beatitudes, that we would be merciful, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we would have authentically pure hearts. We ask this for your glory. Amen.